Growing up Seventh-day Adventist, I think I had really only one fear. I had a fear that someone would take my Sabbath away from me. I had a fear that someday, somehow, the government would take, come in and I would no longer have my Sabbath. Now, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, growing up white, affluent, with two parents, there just wasn't a whole lot to fear in America during that time. Somehow I had a fear about Sabbath. There wasn't a, a lot else to worry about. You know, who we worried about? The missionaries. They had it hard. They had poisonous snakes and natives and rice three times a day. Yeah? We prayed for you. But we weren't afraid of a whole lot where I grew up. Somehow I was afraid about my Sabbath, however. I knew that politics and the government didn't belong here in the church. I knew that I had a right to my Sabbath also. From time to time, it seems like two, three times a year, someone would wave magazines from the platform and ask us to take them home and pass them out to the leaders in our community. My father was always so compliant, he proudly displayed all of that literature in his office. I never heard from the pulpit a sermon on the government or politics, did you? This morning when I asked, they scowled, no, no. Rarely elections, elections would come and go and cycle through and people were somehow silent. Adventists don't protest, we don't honk for candidates, we don't write checks to campaigns. I somehow knew that. And I believe that I tied my concern for my Sabbath with my activity, my action, my political responsibility in the world. Somehow, if I was quiet in the world, at least didn't draw attention to myself, perhaps we could keep our Sabbath. Now that's a gross misunderstanding of the separation of church and state and the Constitution and the legal right for which we are all grateful that every citizen in this country can experience religion freely. That somehow I need to stay out of the public arena is also a gross misunderstanding of the experience of historic Adventists, and I think it's a violation of the gospel. Mark chapter 12 this morning, these are the words from Jesus when he's asked a question along these lines. Two men come to Jesus and they ask, one from the Pharisees, one from the Herodians, that's the household of Herod. They want to catch Jesus with these words, verse 14 of Mark 12. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. We know you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and look, look, let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is on this coin and what inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God. The Bible says they were amazed at Jesus' answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And it's a summary line we often use to enforce the separation of church and state. 
It's the proof that we go to that we ought to have these things remain exclusive from one another. However, um, it's a question actually every era of the church asks. How ought we relate to the government? How ought we be involved in our world? Just a couple of decades later, Paul asks, answers the same kind of question. Romans chapter 13, he says, Everyone must submit himself, herself, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. He goes on to say to them, Pay your taxes. Respect. Give honor. And again, in Titus, the same question the church is dealing with. Titus 3 Verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, and show true humility towards all. With very subtle changes throughout the New Testament, at least, the bottom line always seems to be humans should submit to the earthly government around them. Be respectful of the authority where you live. As time goes on for the Jesus movement, this is not only just good advice, it's a way to stay alive. If you don't respect, they'll they'll probably burn you. However, the words from Jesus in Mark 12, I don't believe are a policy statement for the separation of church and state, for the separation of Caesar's government and the Jewish religion. I don't think they can mean that because during the time Jesus lived, according to his social patterns, there was no such separation. Indeed, there is a political system and an economic system and the family system and a religious system that overarches them all, giving meaning and and bringing unity to all those things. But there is no such thing as Caesar and God. There is no such need for those people at that time to separate things this way. So I don't think it's as simple or even accurate to look at Mark 12 and say this is a text that authorizes us, that tells us why we ought to, and we should die for the separation of church and state even. When the religious ruler, when the representative from Herod's household came to Jesus and they put the question to him, look back, go back up and look at verse 13, the way they put the question to Jesus, oh Jesus... We know you'd never be swayed by humans. We know you always teach the truth from God. We know you're a man of integrity, oh Jesus, which we can read all of that as blah, 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 Jesus, is it lawful? So they pull the strings of the Jewish law because they already know the answer. It's not lawful because the Jewish coin has the the picture of the emperor and they have only one sovereign, the God of the Israelites. They already know the answer. It's not lawful. And they also know the answer on the other side. If they don't give to Rome what Rome's asked for, that's not lawful. That's how you get thrown in jail. They already know the answer to their question. Oh, Jesus, tell us what we should do. Jesus takes their trap and does this interesting thing. He asks for them to produce a Roman coin. And without thinking, they do. And he asks them to read the inscription. And and that they would have a Roman coin in their possession is pretty big news. What are they doing with that currency? They They ought not have it. That would be shameful to pull a Roman coin out of their pocket in front of other religious elites. Jesus gets them right there. What are you doing with a Roman coin? But then he says, now what's the picture and what's the inscription? Read it to me. And he makes them say out loud what must have been inscribed there, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. 
And that's the claim that makes all the difference in Mark chapter 12. It isn't about money. It isn't about keeping religious and political ideas separate. It's not about elevating the Jewish law or paying attention to Roman rules. It's bigger, friends. It's more than that. With that one inscription here laying in the hands of those trying to trap Jesus is the trap itself. The inscription says there is one claiming to be the ruler. There is one claiming to be the sovereign. There is one claiming his government above all others. It's as if Jesus is saying when he makes them read it out loud, you better know the difference between the claims of Caesar and the claims of God. You better know the difference between the kingdom Caesar claims to run and the kingdom of God. You better know the difference between Caesar missions and God missions in the world. Don't be seduced. Don't be seduced. Caesar is not God. This is not Caesar's empire. Caesar is not sovereign. I can hear Jesus saying all of this, the righteous empires, divine appointments. This is just popular rhetoric. Caesar does not call the shots. That all of that one could unpack just by looking at the coin. Jesus is questioning them. To what degree have you already acquiesced to the world? To what degree have you already allowed Caesar and Caesar's government? And just by breathing the air of the day, have you already decided those agendas should be your agendas? To what degree are you already blinded to the agendas of God? To what degree have they overlapped in your mind? Jesus didn't say to pay taxes. He didn't say don't pay taxes. He throws the coin back at the questioners and makes them solve it. Who is your sovereign? What about God's politics? What about God's agendas? What about God's priorities? Where is your citizenship for sure? You should know, Jesus asks. And how are you tracking with that God vision, that kingdom on earth vision? How are you tracking? Where do you get your signals from? We're having fun with a GPS system we got for Christmas. It was a gift given to us. Now I know this is old news for most of you. We're behind times. But we're having great fun with this little, it's like a lady who rides in the car with you, isn't it? It's like, a, it's like a lady, and we're having great fun programming things in and listening to her instructions and going where she tells us to go, asking where the stores are and where the food is, and we've learned a lot about the Inland Empire just by putting the GPS system on, in the car. We particularly like this one voice, though. We've favored the Australian voice. We can't remember her name, Claire or Julie or something, but we choose the Australian we like the way she sounds, and we've been driving Grand Terrace to Loma Linda for 14 years. We know the four-mile trek, but it's a lot of fun when you ask her to give you the directions how to get there. Turn right on Barton, Barton Road, Barton. We just like the way she says that. So one day we're driving along, and I said, hey, Kirby, don't turn. Let's see what she does if we don't turn. Just don't turn. See if we can get her. I wonder what, what do they do if you don't obey? And we didn't turn, and she goes silent, and the screen goes kind of blue. Everything goes away, all your information gone. I swear to you, they have programmed attitude into these things. <laughs> For the, the frustration just spills out as, as she comes back on Claire, and she says, recalibrating. <sighs> recalibrating. You can just see her rolling. There's something in her voice that's changed. You idiots, I said, turn on Barton Road. Recalibrating. 
So it, it is with Jesus in Mark 12, recalibrating. Where are your signals coming from? Have you already folded the agendas of Caesar and the agendas of God into the same conversation? Recalibrate. They're not the same. When Jesus defines this kingdom later in front of Pilate's court, just before he dies, in John 18, Jesus describes, summarizes the kingdom of God this way. John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. If this was what my kingdom looked like, we'd be out there fighting right now. But do you see anybody fighting? No, because my kingdom is from another place. Recalibrating. Where's your signal coming from? Whose agendas are driving you? As Jesus moves about Judea then, he, he moves in a very political way, I believe. Where he stops, with whom he talks, where he does the healing, what kinds of conversations and teach, teachings going on. The pattern of Jesus' life as he moves around Judea is highly political. One doesn't need a megaphone to protest. One doesn't need a rally. All one has to do to attack the powers of Caesar is to respond to those Caesar is ignoring. While Jesus is highly political, I don't think he's primarily or only political, moving around the empire. I don't think Jesus came, for example, to show another way of doing government, to bring civil reform to earthly powers. I don't believe that's what's happening. With the coin conversation, Jesus is essentially saying, yes, this is the way you people do it. You always seem to have a ruler. Today it's Caesar. Next, soon the next warrior will come along, and that picture will be on your coin. It just seems to be the way you humans play your game. Tag, I'm it. I'm your new emperor. Follow me. For Adventist Christians, maybe we've conflated the issues some, being concerned about our Sabbath and our rights, and not to mention prophecy and what's up ahead and what we've taught about what it means when they take our Sabbath away. Maybe we've conflated some issues here, and somehow we've interpreted that Adventist Christians aren't to be out in the public square. We aren't to have a voice in public conversation and agenda. Separation of church and state doesn't mean we banish ourselves from the public square. It means we protect the church from becoming the arena of the world, all the while preaching in the church that the world is our arena. That's what separation of church and state is about for the Christian. And then we begin to move around in the world in ways that are informed by God's agenda, the signal coming from God's kingdom, not this world. And that is the topic for the next two weeks. So what does that kingdom power look like, and how should it inform me as I participate in my world in the public conversations going on? You have to know what the kingdom is before you know how to participate in the world. It seems to me as I look around in the tradition that I love where I've been raised, I see two responses. One is this receding and the hiding and almost an escapism for whatever the reasons Adventist Christians don't belong in the public debate. When I asked my mom about this, you know, mom, what were you taught? Well, I was taught that we always vote. We don't vote for a position, a person. We don't vote for a person. We vote for, we vote for a, an agenda or a principle. Or a, yeah, that's what we do. Did you do, do you do that? Well, not, not really. Wherever we got the idea 
Uh, I would guess some of it comes from Ellen White. You should go to the Ellen White archives to this afternoon. would be good reading. Just put the word politics in, and you'll get at least 20 references that pop up. The Adventist in politics is essentially most of those conversations are discouraging us from participating and mostly because she's concerned that our vision will get confused, that we'll dilute what we're supposed to be about. In fact, in one spot she even says if preachers or teachers become passionate about politics and want to be, become public servants, they ought to relinquish their credentials. All that, that doesn't mean don't go, it means if that becomes your passion and your vision, let somebody else teach and preach. Most all of those references have some caution to them, but they're not all that way. I've been reading about the Adventists in Nevada, have you, this week? As the, the Nevada caucuses are on Saturday, and the Nevada caucuses prohibit then uh, Sabbath keepers, Jews and Adventist Christians from participating. There's been quite an interesting dialogue going on online, and the Religious Liberty Association, on behalf of the church, has been quite active in the conversation. Some of my most favorite blogs have to do with, well, why are Adventists living in Las Vegas anyway? <laughs> They're worried about not being able to vote. What are they doing in Vegas, says one of the blogs. So I was thinking about Adventist Christians in Las Vegas as I came across this quote from Ellen White in the year 18, in the year 1880 or 81, I believe. She happened to be in Iowa, by the way. The Iowa Adventists were asking if they should vote for prohibition. Ellen White answered swiftly, yes to a man everywhere, and perhaps I shall shock some of you if I say, if necessary, vote on the Sabbath day for prohibition. If you cannot at any other time, vote. Did you hear that? Vote on the Sabbath day if you have to. At the Iowa camp meeting business session, 1881, the Review and Herald printed one of the items they resolved among themselves in attendance there, resolved that we express our deep interest, these are Seventh-day Adventist Christians, resolved we express, express our deep interest in the temperance movement now going forward in this state that we instruct all our ministers to use their influence among our churches and with the people at large to induce them to put forth every consistent effort by personal labor and at the ballot box in favor of pro pro prohibitory amendment of the Constitution, which the Friends of Temperance are seeking to secure. In fact, it is true, Adventist Christians and many people of faith led the way in this country for change, social change, like we heard from Martin Luther King earlier, abolition of slavery, the suffrage movement, civil rights. Adventist Christians have been a part of these movements. Because when you believe you have the kingdom of God agenda, vision, when you think your signal's coming through loud and clear, according to Jesus, you don't get to sit on the sidelines and escape. It isn't an option. In fact, it makes going to the ballot box look very easy compared to what Jesus asks. One response I see is people avoiding public conversation. Another is people jumping in with both feet. The, uh, another extreme. We jump in sometimes to the extreme that we forget we're citizens of another kingdom, of God's kingdom. We forget and slip away from biblical teachings. We sometimes slip away from the vision of the kingdom of God that 
we've been given. Sometimes, and in the last four and eight years in America, we allow politics to co-opt religion, friends. Would you agree? We allow politics to tell us what the Christian agenda ought to be. Gregory Boyd summarizes this nicely. This is the pastor, by the way, who lost 20% of his congregation when he decided to preach a sermon series on the importance of Christians and politics, political agendas. He gained those back and another few thousand when, by the time it all settled. He summarizes this nicely. If we could just get the power of Caesar again, however, by the way, he doesn't believe this position, but he's representing this other extreme. If we could just get the power of Caesar again, however we could, we could take it back. If we could get more Christians into office, if we could pass more Christian laws, if we could support more Christian policies, if we, we could restore this nation to one nation under God, if we could just protect the sanctity of marriage and make it difficult, if not impossible, to live a gay lifestyle, we, if we could overturn Roe versus Wade, we'd be getting closer. If we could just pray, a Christian prayer of course, if we could just pray and put prayer back into our schools along with the Ten Commandments and, and have creationist teaching, we would be restoring our country's Christian heritage. If we could just keep one nation under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, if we could protect the rights of Christians to speak their minds, if we could certainly get the control of that liberal media and clean up all the trash that's coming out of the movie and recording industry, all the while if not marginalizing or eradicating those liberal group groups like ACLU, well, we could win this nation back for Jesus Christ. Yes, if only we Christian people and our Christian ideas could dominate the political landscape, we might have won the culture war for God. He calls question, like I believe Jesus calls question, are you sure these are the agendas of God? Are you sure? Are you sure the Christian language in the world is the vision God has for the world? Are you sure that's exhaustive? It is one other extreme when we acquiesce so much to what's happening in the world that we lose sight of biblical teaching, not one reference in this list to the poor in the world, which we will talk about next Sabbath. We lose track of biblical teaching and we acquiesce to the point that we don't even know what vision is coming from God anymore as long as it's a Christian vision in this country. I hear Jesus, Mark chapter 12, asking, really, are you tracking with me still? Be very careful. That is one other extreme. Christian agendas are always God's agendas in the world. Get a vision for the right kingdom, Jesus says, before you step into it. I remember when the 2000 elections were happening, building up to the 2000 elections, one of the girls was fifth grade, running out of school one day, jumped into the van, very eager, opened the van door, red-faced, breathing hard, Mommy, Mommy, who are you going to vote for in the elections? Tell me, who's it going to be? It was a quite surprise, grade five, she's all wrapped up in this. No, tell me, it's just got to be, it's just got to be, she's thinking, who's it just got to be? George W. Bush, it's just got to be because he's the only one who doesn't believe in abortion. Mommy, are you voting for him? It's got to be. She had a teacher. I remember that day very clearly for me personally. It was a moment of clarity. 
my entire Christian responsibility, all the kingdom agendas God calls me to, can never be wrapped up in one ethic or one idea. I cannot let the world set my agenda for God. Oh, I ought to be in it. I ought to just be very clear where the signal's coming from. There is something so much worse than the government taking my Sabbath from me. It would be me acquiescing in the world and forgetting about the agendas of God. Amen. High King of Heaven, be our vision, be our only vision. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.